Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. A few weeks ago, military leaders in Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger announced they would pull out of the West African regional bloc, ECOWAS. We're going to talk today about what their withdrawal says about military rule in those three countries and what the months and years ahead hold for the region. ECOWAS, under foreign influence, betrayed its founding principles and became a threat to its member states and their populations. The organisation notably failed to assist these states in their existential fight against terrorism and insecurity. Worse, when these states decided to take their destiny into their own hands, ECOWAS allegedly adopted an irrational and unacceptable stance by imposing sanctions that were illegal, illegitimate, inhumane and irresponsible. That was Niger's military spokesman talking about the three countries' withdrawal from ECOWAS. Their threat to pull out is the latest in a series of dramatic changes in the Sahel. It's the latest in a swathe of events intensifying political tensions in West Africa. Since 2020, the three neighbours have experienced a string of military coups, severed ties with former colonial ruler France and formed a mutual security alliance, as well as turning to Russia for support. ECOWAS, via sanctions, negotiations and threats of military intervention, has been urging the military-led governments to return to civilian rule. In 2020 and 2021, a group of colonels seized and then consolidated power in Mali in successive coups. Two coups followed in Burkina Faso, triggered by anger about massacres of soldiers by Al-Qaeda-linked militants. Then, in July 2023, the military seized power in Niger. Military leaders, in some cases backed by Russian mercenaries, have doubled down on offensives against Islamist militants. An Al-Qaeda-linked group that we've talked about quite a bit on the show before, Jamiat Nusratul Islam Wal Muslimin, or Janim, holds much of the Malian and Burkina countryside. There's a local ISIS branch fighting too. So far, though, it seems unlikely that Sahelian armies will do better against militants with their new Russian partners than they did in a decade of operations alongside French and other Western troops before the coup. Violence in much of the Sahel has spiralled. Nor does it appear that the three militaries will hand over power to civilians anytime soon. So what should we expect from this new chapter in the Sahel? How long will military rule last in the three countries? And is their foreign policy direction closer to Russia, broken or strained ties with the West and with other West African capitals? Is that direction set? What danger of more coups in the region? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the show Jean-Ave Jessiquel, Crisis Group's Sahel Director. Jean-Ave, welcome back on. Thanks, sure. It's, it's good to be back. So let's start then with the threat to withdrawal from ECOWAS. What does this say about the direction of the three countries under military rule and this new alliance that they formed, the alliance of Sahelian states? Well, first of all, you know, this alliance is pretty recent. You know, back in September 2023, the three countries, Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, have decided to create this new coalition, at first to defend their security interests, but then it quickly took a political turn. Um, a few weeks ago, they have uh, made a, a joint statement announcing that they withdrew from the regional bloc, the ECOWAS. They said that they disagree with the sanctions that the ECOWAS has imposed on each of the military transition in, in the last years. They also accused the regional bloc of uh, being manipulated by Western interests and mostly by France, the former colonial power. And also they, they criticized the Union for its lack of support against transnational jihadism in the last decade. So they came up with this statement and it was a shock to the rest of the Union. And uh, a few days ago, last Saturday actually, the president of ECOWAS held an extraordinary uh, summit during which they decided to lift almost all sanctions that they had 
against the three countries. And they also call Mali, Burkina and Niger to suspend their decision to withdraw from the Union. So we are there. It's hard to anticipate what uh, the three military regime will decide, know that the, the sanctions are, have been suspended. But so far, for political reasons, these states have shown that they are ready to take tough decisions, uh, to go up to rupture. We should also uh, read this rupture as taking part in a broader shift of alliances. These three regimes believe that you know, if they shift you know, their alliances, you know, they can build up a lot of popular support internally. Indeed, there is a, a strong rejection of classic uh, partners like France, of course, but also the UN, and it also includes you know, the, today the, the ECOWAS, and they hope that by engaging in a very tense relationship with these former partners, they can internally build up their legitimacy. Um, so they're playing a diplomatic role. They engage in a lot of tension, up to rupture with their partners, but the real stake are internal. You know, it's a domestic issue. It is about building their own legitimacy internally. On the other hand, you know, the political decision to break up with ECOWAS will not only have political impact, it will also have a, a lot of economic and financial impact in the months or years to come. It could affect the lives of literally tens of millions of people in the region. Potentially, this is much more disturbing than breaking a security alliance with France. And to be honest, it remains unclear how long they could go that way without cutting themselves from much-needed uh, economic or, or financial support. And John Ave, if this, if the pullout of ECOWAS, if that's sort of a moment to take stock, before we look in more depth at each of the three countries, I mean, broadly speaking, how are these military regimes doing? On the one hand, things are not getting better in the Sahel. On the other, some of the worst predictions of what would happen once French troops pulled out, for example, or MINUSMA, the UN mission pulled out of Mali, that the states would collapse, that jihadists would overrun the capitals. Those worst case scenarios haven't come to pass either. Yeah, when the French pulled out, when the MINUSMA left uh, uh, you know, Mali last year, you know, some observers anticipated that these countries could go up to a full collapse. And that did not happen. On the other hand, we cannot say that the security situation is improving. If you look, for instance, at figures, you know, the number of civilian casualties is still increasing a lot. It's extremely worrying. So what we can say that, you know, it's been a decade of continuing deterioration. And it's still the case today, you know. It's still deteriorating. These regimes are not able to perform, you know, more efficiently than their predecessors. But they're doing that nonetheless. You know, they're, they're trying to resist with their own forces. And also, we should say, with the help of a new partner, which is uh, uh, Russia and also the Russian mercenary company, uh, Wagner. But I think that we should also enlarge a little bit the, the picture. It's not only a shift of alliances, you know, going from an alliance with the French to an alliance with, with the Russian. The three countries of the Central Sahel have gone through major changes in the last three years. And the region has really entered a new chapter of its history. We have to really understand the scope of the change. Uh, now we have army officers, you know, in all the three countries that have seized power. Uh, they have expelled the French troops. They have forged new links with a new partner, you know, Russia. They have forged new links between one another to create, you know, this uh, Alliance des États du Sahel, you know, to better resist external pressure. No, they are also 
breaking up with ECOWAS. This regime claimed that they want to restore full sovereignty and security over uh, all the territory. Indeed, they are doubling down on operation against uh, jihadist uh, militants. And it doesn't, you know, um, function very well. Nonetheless, again, you know, they are trying to restore some form of uh, security on the territory. Meanwhile, they are channeling, you know, their resources, and they don't have a lot of resources, to these military campaigns. So at the expenses of de delivering basic public services to the population. So we have a new situation. On the one hand, we have this military regime. They were not elected, but they are popular. Some segment of the citizens of the Malian population, of the population of Burkina Faso and of Niger, some of them have really regained some trust in their leaders. And they again expect something from the state. And that's something that is very different from the same countries a few years ago, when nobody really expected anything from the democratically elected uh, leaders. We can call that populism. And it is, you know, uh, populism. But it's striking how much these unelected leaders have managed to create some links with the citizen. On the other hand, this uh, pro-sovereignty narrative also comes at a cost. Sovereignty can help the leaders to recreate some links between, you know, the, the state and, and the citizens. It helps give them some pride or this kind of thing. But you cannot eat sovereignty, you cannot drink sovereignty, you cannot get a job out of sovereignty. These regimes that are based on this pro-sovereignty narrative, they still need to deliver basic services to the population. And their narrative about sovereignty is cutting them away from much-needed financial support. You know, their new security partner, Russia, cannot do much to get the billions of dollars that these states need to build an efficient education system or to build an efficient health system. So at some point, we anticipate that this military regime may go into a dead end or they may need to come up with a more balanced relationship between their different partners, including the Western partners, including the regional bloc. So let's zoom in a bit on each of the three countries. So all three face these struggles against the big Al-Qaeda-linked group, the Janim, as we heard up top, also ISIS, Islamic State-linked militants. But in Mali, the army also recently marched into a northern town, Kidal, which had been held by non-jihadist rebels, mostly Tuareg separatists, Tuareg a community across much of the Sahel. And those groups had signed a peace deal with the government What back in 2015 that envisaged devolving more power to the north, army reform, but the deal hadn't really gone anywhere. So why did the army march on Kidal and how has that turned out? Kidal, to be honest, is a rather small town, you know, in, in the desert. But regaining control of this town was a, a huge symbolic victory for the regime. You know, it gave credit to the narrative on, you know, territorial sovereignty, you know. It gave credit to the narrative according to which, you know, for years, you know, Minusma and France, that were both present in Kidal, prevented the Mayan state from recovering, you know, the full control of its territory. And indeed, after France departure and then after Minusma departure, the Mayan state, with the help of Russian mercenaries, was able to regain control of Kidal. So, you know, this is an important victory. Kidal has always been, you know, the starting point of rebellion in the north, actually since the 60s, uh, and again in the 90s, and again in the previous decade. So it's an important victory, but this being said, this is not the end of the war. 
the separatist armed groups are still very influent in the northern part of the country, in the Kida region. And they're now known as the CSP, right? But it's mostly, but not only, Tuareg rebels. It's a coalition, some that had fought the government, some fought on the side of the government in the past, but all had signed the 2015 deal. Yeah, it's a coalition of groups called the Cadre Stratégique Permanent. Uh, it's a French acronym, which is difficult to translate. So this cadre, you know, uh, they're still there. It's true that they have been weakened by the latest uh, military operation. They lost their headquarters. They lost Kidam. Currently, they don't have much capacity to attack uh, Mayan forces. But there is little doubt that they are trying to regroup. And, you know, if there is no political offer, it's likely that they are preparing to launch a new offensive at a better moment. And meanwhile... You have the jihadist groups, you know, and the jihadist groups have not been weakened by the loss of Kidal, you know, in the same way as the cadre strategic permanent have been weakened, you know. They are now the most influential opposition groups to the current regime and to their Russian support. The jihadists, uh, you know, especially from uh, the Al-Qaeda uh, coalition, the Jnim, are extremely active in central Mali, also increasingly in southern and western Mali. They may not have the capacity to seize Bamako, the capital, but they can definitely put a lot of pressure on the government and they disturb this narrative about the fact that Bamako is able to improve the security over the territory. And jean the leader of the Al-Qaeda branch in the Sahel, the leader Iyad Agali, is a former Tuareg rebel. He knows a lot of the leaders in Kidal uh, quite well. Is there a chance of a sort of more united front emerging now against Bamako? Yeah, that's hard to tell right now. Um, I think that, you know, the, uh, between the two forces, probably, you know, the separatist Tuaregs, you know, the separatist groups are, are probably the most weakened. And um, they may have an interest in trying to establish an alliance with the jihadists. But at the same time, you know, establishing this alliance will cost them a lot politically. In the last decade, you know, uh, they got some political support because of the fact that they were different from the jihadists. No, if they position themselves in a close alliance with the jihadists, you know, they may lose everything. And as they are, you know, the weaker of the two groups, you know, that this could prove a, a costly choice for them. The initiative may be more in the side of the government. If the government is able to transform its uh, recent military gain into a political offer, they might be able to re-engage uh, the separatist groups and even more, you know, if they seize the historic moment, they could also try to engage the, the jihadist groups. Clearly, this is not the most likely scenario. But again, you know, this is an historic moment, you know, that Kidal has been out of the reach of the, of the government for more than a decade. No, this, you know, symbolic victory has been achieved. So the government is in a better position to make an offer. And I think that's the right moment. And we'll come back a bit later to prospects for diplomacy with militant groups under these new military regimes. But John Abe, why did Kidal fall so easily? Why didn't the cadre, the CSP, why didn't they put up more of a fight? That's a good point. You know, it's, uh, I think that there were two main reasons for that. First of all, the separatist rebels are better when they fight uh, outside city. They are better in controlling the countryside when they can move quickly. But, you know, they are not uh, really in a good position to defend a town or city. And so, you know, they knew that, you know, with uh, the army coming pretty strongly 
with a huge force toward Kidal. Uh, also, with Wagner forces, they knew that, you know, they could resist a bit, but, you know, they would eventually lose and civilians could also suffer. So I think that's uh, the main reason why they retreated. Also, we have to recognize that um, they have lost a lot of support in the last few years. Uh, they are not in the same position that they were, especially politically. You know, they were part of a political process after the signing of the LJ peace agreement. No, this accord is dead. And so, so, you know, they've lost a lot of political support. But again, they have not disappeared. Some of their leaders are in exile, but they will eventually come back. And uh, the most likely scenario, unfortunately, is that you will have military actions by the separatist groups if there is, again, no political offer made to them in, in the coming months. And so you talked about the importance of the Wagner forces. And, and, you know, again, now I think they're called the what the Africa Corps or the Expeditionary Corps, I think is what the Russians call them. Though I guess in Mali, they're still known as Wagner. But what, what is the relationship now between the authorities in Mali, between Asimi Goita, the Malian leader, and Wagner and, and Moscow more broadly? Yeah, so Wagner, you know, is, is offering a relatively small force in support of the Mayan uh, army. But it's proving rather efficient, uh, especially, you know, when it comes to regaining control of, uh, of specific uh, locations. It's striking that Wagner forces are probably uh, much smaller than uh, the French Operation Barkhane. You know, we estimate that there are about 1,000 Wagner mercenaries in Mali. And, you know, the, the Barkhane forces were 5,000 5, over a, a, a bigger uh, territory. Uh, there were also 13,000 uh, MINUSMA uh, troops. So the size is really different. But uh, Wagner, or the people who are described as Wagner in Mali, they were directly in support uh, of, uh, of the Mayan forces. And the project of the, of the Mayan forces was to regain control uh, of Kidal. And a smaller force could do that. When we discuss with some... Uh, either uh, army officers or, or, or rebels. We have, we have contact, you know, on both sides. What they stress is, is two things. That first, Wagner is bringing, you know, uh, an expertise in coordinating offensive. And that seems to be a, a key element, uh, especially uh, when these forces organized the offensive uh, on Kidal. Second, there is also a, a kind of a technological element with the presence of drones, they are probably uh, Turkish uh, drones, but it seems that Wagner is able here again to uh, to support you know the coordination when using these drones, and we know that uh, these drones made a difference, especially uh, in the offensive against uh, Kidal. So let's move then to Burkina to Burkina Faso. If in Mali, Russian forces Wagner Africa Corps have been around for a while, they're fighting on front lines with the Malian army. In Burkina, well, it seems as though Ibrahim Traoré, the leader there, has just recently entered into some sort of agreement with the Russians, contracting them for his own protection, for protection of the government. Yeah, first of all, the, the presence of Russian contractors in Burkina is much newer, much more recent than in Mali. You know, it dates back to uh, end of November, December. So this is just really just a few months ago. It's literally just a few months ago, and uh, it's still the very beginning of the deployment. According to what we know, they are there for two main missions. The first one is to protect 
the authority and uh, the highest authority of the country. And as you said, you know, this is a, a role uh, that is similar to the one they played in uh, Central Africa. Uh, the second role is to, you know, to train the security forces in Burkina Faso against the jihadist uh, groups that are controlling, you know, about arts of, uh, of the country uh, today, mostly the countryside. The presence of the Russian is new because in the past years, um, the Burkina Bay Authority and especially uh, President uh, Captain Traoré has invested a lot in arming groups of civilians. They call them the VDP, the Volontaires pour la Défense de, de, la, de la Patrie. Um, so they, they are armed uh, civilian groups who are you know, monitored by the army or by the police force and they join uh, operation uh, against uh, the jihadist groups in support of the army or in support uh, of the police force. I mean, last year, uh, Captain Traoré made a statement in which he said, you know, we don't need Wagner because our Wagner has a VDP. But it's not working, you know, and, and clearly the situation uh, uh, in Burkina Faso has deteriorated the most, you know, um, among the three countries. So we believe that, you know, uh, the decision by Captain Traoré to finally call uh, Wagner or the Africa Corps is probably uh, uh, linked to the fact that the strategy to use the BDP, to use the armed civilians is not working. It's actually uh, backfiring on Burkina Faso, creating a lot of uh, casualties among, uh, among civilians. The jihadist groups also increasingly killing civilians because they suspect a lot of civilians of supporting the VDP. So for all these reasons, I think that the, the government is also trying to change its policy. So I think that what we're going to see in Burkina Faso is a mix of what, uh, you know, Wagner has been doing in both South Africa and Mali. Like in South Africa, you know, they're going to protect uh, the authority. And like in Mali, they're going to also uh, trade and take part in operation against the jihadist group. But again, you know, we'll see in the year to come, we'll see how this relationship is going to develop. And in the Central African Republic, I think actually there the Russians are doing both. They're protecting President Wadera and fighting with the Central African Republic army against rebels in the north. So maybe that's also the future in Burkina. But in the Central African Republic, it seems that Wagner have mining concessions and at least some of their payment comes through those. Do we know how they're getting paid in Burkina and in Mali for that matter? Well, um, to be honest, this is a, a disputed issue and, and we don't have clear evidence. Some speculate that Wagner is controlling resources like uh, artisanal coal mining, uh, as they do in South Africa, for instance. And we recently received indication that uh, some Wagner elements deployed in one of the larger mining areas uh, near Gao in northern Mali. But they did not stay for long, and, and so far, contacts uh, we had with people on the ground do not indicate any substantial change uh, in the mine. We also have indications that uh, Wagner mercenaries engage in uh, plundering against civilians, such as stealing money and cattle, but I, I doubt this is enough to finance the deployment of the entire force. Last, some estimate that the deployment of Wagner costs uh, about 10 million US dollars a month. So it's approximately uh, 120 million a year. And in and last year, the budget for the defense and security forces in Mali was approximately 800 million a year. So this would be a substantial effort for the Malian state. 
But it's possible that the government uses its regular budget to finance uh, Wagner. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was an increase in the budget of the Malian state security soon after the deployment of Wagner. Uh, this increase seemed equivalent to what the deployment of a Russian company would cost. But again, we, we don't have clear evidence and, and this is a debated issue. And John Abe, just before we move to Niger, you mentioned how badly things have deteriorated in Burkina. And it's really there that the, the jihadist advance has been really sort of stunning and predated, in some ways precipitated the coups over the past few years. What mostly Janim, but also the Islamic State's local branch have seized much of the countryside in the east and the north, even besieging cities and towns in the way that we haven't seen them do anywhere else in the Sahel. Been a huge levels of bloodshed and displacement. Yeah, indeed. We estimate that about you know, 2 million of, of Burkina Bay have been displaced by the fighting. It's about 10% of, uh, of the population. It's up to, to 20 uh, cities and towns that are besieged by the jihadists. Um, uh, the situation is extremely worrying. The, the casualties is, is extremely high in terms of uh, civilians uh, being killed. Yes, it's uh, astonishing, you know, the, the speed with which, you know, the jihadists have expanded in, uh, in different parts of uh, this uh, relatively small country compared to Mali and, um, and Niger. At the same time, the situation appears a little bit uh, blocked, as it is in neighboring countries. The jihadists are strong in the countryside, but they are not able to really uh, take control uh, over the city. They are able to put pressure on cities. But city remain under the control of the state. And meanwhile, the state now still retain control over the cities, but is not able to challenge the control of the countryside with the jihadists. It's kind of a blocked situation, you know, and uh, uh, sometimes I describe that as uh, the fighting between two weaknesses. Neither side is, is really able to win over the other one, you know, definitely through military means. And when you have two witnesses fighting each other, it could last for a lot of time. So let's move then to Niger. We can talk about its struggles against Islamist rebels in a moment. But the factors that underpin the coups in Mali and Burkina, I mean, in Burkina, the coup was directly triggered by massacres of soldiers by jihadists. In Mali, also a lot of popular exasperation about insecurity. Is it the same sort of set of triggers that led to the coup in, in Niger? Well, I mean, Niger is an interesting case, you know. At first, it seems um, to offer a different situation. Niger was doing better than Mali and Burkina Faso. There were less attacks, less casualties, but in Burkina Faso, clearly. But I think that, you know, uh, even though the country was doing relatively better, the state of the economy, the state of the political system was really not solid enough uh, to prevent a coup. Uh, for instance, security. Yes, uh, probably uh, less attacks. A president who was willing uh, to engage in, uh, in some talks with jihadists in order to, uh, to negotiate you know, surrenders, for, for instance. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, while this strategy... Uh, was efficient in the fact that there were less attacks against security forces. At the same time, the jihadists were still present in the countryside. Maybe not through a lot of attacks against the security forces, but they were, you know, um, taxing the population. So from outside, you could think that indeed 
the state was performing better, but seen from the perspective of the population, and the jihadists were around, and the state was not doing much uh, to protect them from um, heavy taxation, for instance. And then, yes, it's true that the president has been democratically uh, elected, but it's a state that was running the one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in the world. So it was a very fragile situation, both in terms of security, of economic prospect, and, and democracy. And so in the end, you know, what you had also in the region is uh, military officers starting to understand that they could play a more active political role. Uh, you know, military officers in Niger have seen that in Mali and Burkina Faso, they were able to seize power because the democratically elected elite has been completely discredited. So they used the same script and it worked. They very quickly, they, they gained popular support and uh, there were very little force to defend the democracy or to defend the democratically elected president uh, in the streets when the military took over. And it's not because of violence, you know, that of course it's always dangerous to oppose a coup and to oppose military. But to be fair, it was a, a relatively bloodless coup. And it's a, it, it tells something about the fact that uh, these, these countries are, are not only facing a security issue, they are also facing a much deeper issue with uh, their political system and the lack of legitimacy of democracy. And the military leader in Niger, Abdul Rahman Chiani, who is he? And does it seem likely that he will take Niger in a similar direction to Mali and Burkina in its relations with Russia? So Chiani was, was known especially for being the head of the presidential guard for more than 10 years. That's really where, you know, he, he gained a close knowledge of uh, how politics work in the country. Himself is not close to, uh, to Moscow. But, you know, he's, uh, he's part of, uh, of a small group of, um, uh, of uh, generals and, and uh, higher-ranked uh, military officers, some of whom are, have developed closer ties to, to, to Moscow. And uh, right now, there are internal discussions between the, the member of this uh, junta, which is called the CNSP, the CNSP, and... Um, I mean, it's very hard to know exactly the details, but it seems that they have uh, different visions. They are army officers who support uh, a stronger alliance with uh, Moscow. And as a matter of fact, there were uh, high-level visits and meetings between uh, Nigerian officers and Russian officers in the last few weeks. But, uh, you know, there are so other uh, members of the junta who believe that uh, they need to maintain um, some good relationship with uh, the West, including with the U.S. The U.S. Uh, have a military base in the north, in Agadez, and possibly also with uh, the European Union. So it's still a matter of a debate. It's leaning toward Moscow, but it's still an ongoing discussion. So, you know, if we look across the three governments in the Sahel, I mean, not the only governments in Africa that have succumbed to coups over the last uh, few years, but if we look at the Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso. Jean-Avé, you talk about a new era in the Sahel. I mean, it seems that the military regimes are here to stay in some form or another. Not much sign they're going to move towards elections or certainly not elections that they would lose. So what is the future for the three countries? You know, what are, what are the different ways it could go over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, this military regime at first described themselves as transition, you know, regime. 
I think it's not the best way to describe what they're doing. It's more than a transition. It's a new phase in the history of his regime. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, authoritarian uh, regime led by military officers are here to stay for some years uh, in the region. Two years, five years, ten years, very hard to tell. But uh, I think that the most likely scenario, unfortunately, is that we will have military officers running this country. We may have other coups. But, you know, this coup will result in a new military leader taking over, you know, the, the previous one. And I don't see any short way back to any real forms of democracy. This being said, this regime may, be, uh, may try to organize elections in order to stabilize their control over the country. Uh, in any case, you know, I, I don't see them organizing any election that they won't be, you know, sure to win. And again, what we should stress is the fact that they are still popular in some uh, segment of the population, especially in the biggest uh, cities and especially among the urban youth. I think that they remain very popular. But again, like I said, it's one thing to recreate some form of links between the citizens and and the state. But still, this is a region with um, a very uh, high rate of uh, demographic growth. You have one of the youngest population in the world with a, a lot of um, needs in terms of education, health, job creation, and for these regimes. There is a tension between, on the one hand, this pro-sovereignty narrative, which is functioning, but which is putting these states away from uh, their traditional support. You mean the traditional foreign support, so Western partners in essence, or other African countries? Yeah, the Western partners, also their neighbors from the ECOWAS, all partners that matter when it comes to uh, developing the economy to get some financial support. So on the one hand, they are putting themselves from these uh, partners. And on the other hand, they still need to provide basic services to the population. You know, as we speak, there are power cuts in Bamako. And there have been power cuts for months now. And the authorities are unable to restore the provision of power to the population of the capital. And it's creating a lot of frustration. And concretely, you can see the tension that these regimes are facing. You know, they, they may be popular when it comes to uh, breaking up with France, to breaking up with the COAS. But they struggle to deliver services to the population, to their political basis also. And at some point, this situation will uh, become, you know, extremely difficult. And then there will be difficult choices. And those difficult choices, jean I mean, from what you've said, it seems as though there are sort of, broadly speaking, two directions it could go. If, again, as you say, it seems unlikely there's going to be a transition back to civilian rule, the sort of best case, that seems unlikely. A worst case, that jihadists, for example, advance, actually seize a capital in the cell, maybe not completely out of the question, but that also seems improbable. So if we leave those two scenarios to one side, it seems that things could go broadly speaking in a couple of directions. One might be that the military regimes straddle a more middle ground and maybe keep some elements of the partnerships with Russia, for example, but not take too confrontational a stand towards Western capitals, try to get development aid, investment, and also sort of keep relations alive with their West African neighbours. That would be one direction. The other would be to break more decisively with the West and with ECOWAS, but presumably then without funds, they will face more local discontent, maybe have to crack down more, become more repressive. I mean, is that broadly speaking right? And how should ECOWAS 
West African capitals, European countries, the US, push military leaders toward more balanced foreign relations? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really believe that uh, this regime will very soon face two main options. Either they engage in a more repressive uh, behavior, you know, and they double down on authoritarianism. And it's likely that their political basis will dwindle. And that's probably one of the worst uh, scenario. So the other option would be um, for uh, this regime to choose to rebalance uh, the partnership they have with their different countries. Possibly, you know, the link with France is definitely broken. At least it's broken for, for a few years. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it has to be broken with all the Western actors. It's still possible for them, if they want to, to strike a better balance between their security partners and also their economic partners. But eventually it will have to come from the ruling elite. And uh, it's them uh, who have to show signs that uh, they are ready to have you know, a more uh, balanced uh, approach to their relationship with their partners. Meanwhile, you know, uh, the ECOWAS or the EU, what they can do is keep trying to engage, you know, keep the channel of discussion open, uh, try to support, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the moderate voices uh, within this regime. There are some. Uh, and I think that it's uh, worthwhile to identify the, the moderate voices and to try to connect to them. I think, you know, it's uh, that uh, Western partners have to recognize also that, uh, you know, the, the previous decade is over. You know, the time for being the main security partners, partners in the region, it, it's over. Uh, there is not much security opportunity between these three regimes and uh, especially the EU, for instance. Some, but they are limited. You know, again, you know, you should uh, keep the, the channel of communication open. In terms of military cooperation, I see very little opportunity. When it comes to uh, cooperation, you know, with the police forces, there may be a little bit more, you know, but again, nothing like, you know, what we had in the previous decade. I think that if you cannot address your short-term security concerns because, you know, you don't have a partner that is willing to let you uh, do anything on that, then you have to address the longer-term uh, uh, prospect. And it's not an easy task, but I, I believe that uh, we are facing a region, a part of the continent, that have to address uh, structural issues from climate change to um, difficult uh, food security system uh, to uh, a population that is among the youngest uh, of the planet, which is both a good thing and a challenge for the state. So I think that, you know, if you cannot address the short-term security issues, at least you can try to address the longer-term issues. So before the coups in Mali, Burkina, Niger, although it was very much under the radar, it seemed that governments and leaders were starting to talk to jihadists, talk to militants. In Burkina, it uh, wasn't widely publicised, but you had a countrywide ceasefire for some months between uh, the Burkina army and the uh, Janim, the Al-Qaeda-linked group that you talked about, that didn't extend to fighting between Janim and the VDPs, the, the, the local militias, as you talked about, but it did uh, it did hold between the army and, and Janim. You had some signs that Malian society, the Malian government, was opening up to prospects of talks with Janim as well, with Iedad Ghali in particular. 
And you had uh, Bazoum, who had uh, seemingly had struck local ceasefire deals, prisoner releases. So it seemed that the region was moving after a decade of an approach that was rooted really in, in military operations first. It seemed that the region before the coups was moving to an approach that paired the military operations with political engagement. Is it right to see that experiment as over? I mean, yes, it's true that the military regime have, have turned their back to these experiments you know, of trying to uh, talk to the jihadists. In all the three countries, they were attempt to uh, establish some form of talks with the jihadists. For a very long time, you know, the notion of a dialogue with the jihadists was a taboo question. And um, very recently, you know, in the last few years, the, the three presidents uh, in Mali, Burkina, Niger, you know, experimented you know, some form of talks. But then the, the coup interrupted uh, these attempts. One of the reasons is that for the military regime, they are military actors and they believe that because of uh, the jihadists are a military threat, they have to be uh, dealt with with military means. Um, they also believe that uh, uh, there was a need to, uh, to change the security partner and it's because they had the wrong security partners that they could not win over the, the jihadists. This being said... We have indication that uh, as this regime, they know how to manage you know, the, the whole uh, security situation, they are also discreetly engaging in uh, very localized talks with the jihadists. It's not anything like a, a political discussion, but it's very localized um, form of um, dialogues to negotiate a localized ceasefire, to negotiate, you know, avoiding uh, attacks on a specific road. For instance, uh, we have indications that uh, on the road between um, uh, southeastern Burkina Faso and, uh, and western Niger, which has become a, a vital road for Niger because of the ECOWAS sanctions uh, since last year, though this road, you know, has, um, has seen less attacks than expected, probably because they were... Um, some attempts at negotiating with the jihadists, some form of local security. So, you know, there are signs like that. But uh, again, it's much more modest than what was tried uh, by, for instance, by uh, President Bazoum in the last couple of years. What we may hope is that um, these regimes understand that, uh, yes, the use of force is necessary in this fight against the jihadists, but it will not be enough and that, you know, we, we can hope that at some point they will feel the need to add the tool of dialogue to the military uh, tool. But again, yeah, we've lost some time on this specific issue. So, Jean-Abbé, maybe to end, you're in Dakar, in the Senegalese capital, where President Macky Sall, I'm sure people will have been following this, has pushed back elections. People worried that it was an attempt by the president to hold on to power. Now, in another West African country that we haven't talked about, Guinea, that has also suffered a coup, military leaders cited the president, Alpha Condes, holding on to power as justification for their power grab. In Dakar, President Saul's announcement of the election delay met, what, fierce street protest. And now I think the courts have ruled that he actually has to move ahead with organising the vote. But how much in Dakar, you know, through this latest episode or even in other West African capitals, does fear of contagion 
fear that what has happened in the three Sahelian countries and other countries, the, the sense that the military can seize and hold power, how much does that cloud debates there? I think that the ECOWAS decision to react so strongly after the, the coup in Niger in July 2023 is related to this fear of a contagion of a military coup in the region. They went very strongly against the, the junta in Niger because they are afraid that, you know, after uh, Mali, after Burkina Faso, after Guinea and now Niger, you have a contagion of, uh, of uh, military coup. And, uh, and to a certain extent, I understand this fear because it seems that there is like a, a script. When you look at the way uh, the, the, the military took over the power in Niamey, in Niger, how they, they managed to build up a very strong popular support. I mean, they did exactly what uh, the Burkinabe uh, 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 Runta and the Malian Runta have done in the, in the previous two years. And it's working, you know, you know, building your, your political support out of a very strong anti-French sentiment, also pointing at uh, Western actors or foreign actors as, uh, you know, uh, uh, threatening the sovereignty of, uh, uh, of, of the state. All this is working very well. So often with a bit of Russian support or, or is it mistaken to overstate that? Of course, with support, possibly from uh, Russian uh, propaganda, uh, from the use of, of social network, but uh, it will not work if there was no basis for, you know, a population standing ready to support this kind of message. So, yes, the external propaganda is probably facilitating the coup, but uh, ultimately the coup are successful because the population is tired with political regimes that are not giving anything to the population. You know, there is this lack of trust, lack of expectation. That's very important. When I was in Mali a few years ago, I was struck by the fact that nobody really expected anything from the state. You have to manage to, to get your own education, to get your own power, to get your own water. All that, you know, it's citizens organizing themselves. And yes, you know, the, the military regime are not necessarily providing more services, but they are, you know, speaking directly to the citizens and they are making promises to the citizens. And it's, it's working. They were expecting that. So again, you know, there, there is a threat of expansion. There is a fear of contagion and there are reasons to be afraid. But this being said, let's be careful when assessing the situation in all the Western countries. Uh, they are facing similar challenges, to be sure. Like, for instance, how to manage a, a very young population with, with a lot of needs. But at the same time, the situation of all the political system is not the same. Um, and I find it very reassuring in Senegal, the population, the civil society, decided to defend its democratic system. They, they refused the election to be postponed, you know. Uh, they tried to resist uh, the hijacking of their democracy. And it tells a lot about, you know, the, sometimes the, the resistance of the population, also the resistance of institution, the role played by the constitutional court. So uh, the Constitutional Court decided to resist the choices made by President Sall to postpone the election. So it's, uh, you know, there are multiple reasons to explain why Senegal resisted better recently. You know, uh, it's a mix of um, population willing to defend its system, standing ready to take the street, and also stronger political institutions. And when thinking about you know, contagion, I think that we also need to look at resistance, you know, uh, instead of just looking at the threat, 
Let's also look at why some countries, some states, better resist than others. Chalavay, thanks for coming on again. Thank you, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Sahel and West Africa on our website, crisisgroup.org. We did an episode some months ago, I think back in June last year, about the danger of Islamist militants getting a foothold in the Gulf of Guinea, which I know a lot of people are worried about. So do check that out if you haven't already. I think it was called Could Jihadists Seize Parts of Coastal West Africa? So you can't miss it. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks as ever to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And I very much hope that you'll join us again next week.